Welcome to Precept Responsibly, a podcast working to make precepting approachable over happy hour. I'm Jason Mordino. And I'm David Hughes. Let's get into some precepting. Welcome back, listeners. We hope you had a wonderful mid-year clinical meeting. We thank you guys for coming out uh, and meeting us during our little get-together there uh, <laughs> at the, the Rhythm and Riffs. It was a great time. Thank you to all the listeners that came, uh, all the great ideas. We hope to bring you all on the podcast, uh, get some of those ideas worked out. So so thank you again um, for making it a wonderful experience for all of us. I finally have my voice back. I do sound a little off, but uh, it's finally coming back. Uh, Dave and I are, are super excited to get this next episode underway. Um, you know, this next guest is, is someone that we both got a chance to see uh, speak to our residency program and uh, brought some really great ideas around. Um, so why don't we just jump right in? Uh, Dr. Sabicki, Stephanie Sabicki, welcome to uh, Precept Responsibly. Uh, maybe give our listeners just a quick update. Uh, tell, us some, tell them about yourself. Uh, what do you do for a living and why are you here? Sure. Thank you guys so much for having me. Um, so as, um, as you mentioned, I'm Stephanie Sabicki. I am an associate uh, clinical faculty member at Northeastern University. I've been there since 2015, but I've been in academia for now 10 years. I was doing the calculations just before we hopped on and I almost couldn't believe it that it's been that long. Um, but I particularly particularly practice in internal medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital. That's where my practice site is. Um, but I'm also really involved in uh, curricular design and I have a new role actually as of March of this year. I'm the director of the PharmD program and the Bachelor's of Pharmaceutical Sciences program. Um, so I have a little bit of an administrative hat that I wear on top of teaching and clinical stuff. Um, but my my journey has been really strange and it's it's been a long time to get to academia. So uh, hopefully during our discussion, we can talk about little pieces I've learned along the way. Um, I've done a lot of different things, worked in long-term care, uh, worked in hospital, worked in um, worked in academia as well. And so I can bring some of that and flavor our discussion around some of those experiences I've had. You have been all over the place. That makes for like a really interesting career story. Not that I would love to dig into that, but not that I'm here to do that today. So um, what are we here to talk about today? We are going to be talking about teaching philosophies. Uh, specifically, like, does everyone need a teaching philosophy? Do they have a teaching philosophy? And what do I mean by that? Um, and I bring this up because like, Every resident that ever does a teaching certificate writes one, if stuffs it in a drawer, forgets about it. And um, I, I always have questioned like the value, the thoughts. And then you gave a great speech at our program that has done a lot of like thinking about it. So um, before we dive into like what is a teaching philosophy, what, what are you drinking for the day? Um, so I brought my Downey cider. I'm an unfiltered cider kind of gal. And so nice. that's what I brought today. And I actually have it right here. Um, and I cracked it open just a little bit before we uh, started so I could um, get a little bit of liquid courage maybe for the podcast, but no, I'll keep it professional. I promise. Absolutely. I mean, it's just the four of us. Like, <laughs> just forget about all the listeners. It's just us. Wait, uh, does Spencer count? Oh, I mean, he's here watching. So <laughs> like, he's a voyeur to our podcast production uh dave what are you well welcome back from ash and msh or ashp what are you drinking bud you know this is going to be a shock to most listeners that know um my style but i'm actually rehydrating myself with some water tonight um so for anyone you know doing doing the non-alcoholic route tonight i'm with you there i'm just rehydrating for this episode uh coming back from a long stretch of uh new orleans and in in las vegas 
Are you using those IV hydrate packets? No, 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 no. Uh, just straight water. Floating around in my water, not not my <laughs> wine. For anyone that wants another reason to f- make fun of me, and I, yes, I do put ice in my wine. Um, so anyone else that needs another reason, not that people need more fuel, but um, Jason, what about you? I'm really disappointed. <laughs> I am drinking. What am I drinking? Well, I'm about to start drinking Dublin City Brewing Company's Irish Stout, um, which is a uh, a brewery from Ireland. Uh, I found it in my local package store and um, or Packy if you're from the New England area, uh, and I couldn't help myself. I had to grab it. So, um, all right. Well, why don't we get down to to brass tacks? Uh, Stephanie, in your experience as a you know faculty member and someone who like specializes in like sounds like now curricular development and all those fun things, um, when I say a teaching philosophy, uh, what do you interpret that to mean? Um, because it's not like very Shakespearean of me to use my interpretation, so I'd much rather hear yours. Sure. Although comparing to Shakespeare, I'm not sure. Um, but I uh, so a teaching philosophy really is a kind of like a guiding principle for what you base some of your teaching off of. And when when I say teaching, it can be classroom teaching, giving CE programs, uh, precepting students, residents, coworkers, if you're, you know, teaching them as well, training. It really is kind of like a mantra that you keep with yourself. And I know, you know a lot of people are involved in like missions and visions for their organizations. And, and this is sort of like your own teaching mission statement in a way. Um, I think that there's there's a variety of different ways that this can like manifest itself. And it really just depends on, you know, what what you're really feeling at the time. And so you you really incorporate a lot of your different experiences that you've had both as a learner and as a teacher in developing this philosophy of your own. Um, and as you mentioned, some people, you know, write them down and put them in a drawer and never see them again. If you're somebody who is precepting a lot or actually teaching in a school of pharmacy or elsewhere. I mean, usually your teaching philosophy accompanies a lot of the materials that you have. And and I know we'll talk probably more about when you update it and when you think it's appropriate to do that, but it really is kind of like that mission statement that you have for your own teaching. And it's designed to change over time. There's no way 10 years ago, my teaching philosophy would be the same as it is now that I've had some additional experiences. And so it's meant to be as fluid as a document as maybe like a CV is or uh, diversity statements, if you have those, but just like your organization might update a mission and vision. That's kind of what this philosophy is for you. And, you know, this is probably my, my immaturity coming out, but when I, when I think of the word philosophy, I think back to like sitting in like a little classroom, English, English class and, getting lost in, in the amble of like, oh, philosophy, let me let me take a nap in, in class. But, I, you know, when I think of that word, I think there's a cookie cutter, perfect, ideal way to do something. And I guess that's how I envision the term philosophy in my head. And it sounds like from what you're saying, there may there may be different aspects of philosophies. Can you walk me through like, what is what does that word mean to you? Is, is there a right or wrong way to do it? What, what are your thoughts there? Sure. I thought you were going to say the Ben Fold song and then I was like singing it in my head. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, it's not that cultured. <laughs> no, not that, not, not, not quite. Um, so, I mean, I guess I would encourage people to not get tied down into the, the word itself. And I, I would say that 
you know, a philosophy has different components to it. And there's, there's lots of information out there that you can look up what like components would be a part of a teaching philosophy. Um, but it really just means like internally what you use to guide your teaching and, and what you feel like is most important as a teacher. Um, I would say, you know, there's, there, there isn't a right or a wrong way to do this. I think in a structured environment, like if you are going into academia or you are somebody who, who practices and teaches in an academic setting, there's components that you would look for. Like you definitely want to have um, your underlying teaching beliefs and you want to cite different educational resources and you want to talk about how you've been able to change your teaching to the different scenarios that you present or like things that really interest you. Um, as part of my work in some of the curricular design stuff, um, I have an interest in teaching principles and teaching um, theories. And so I use those in my teaching. And of course, in my teaching philosophy, I want to mention that I do that, you know, give myself credit for some of the effort that's gone into it. And, and that's true if you're a preceptor, or if you're a resident, um, you know, thinking about you know, how do, how do I teach? What types of things have influenced the way that I teach my students? And that's really what the philosophy is. It's not, not necessarily something that has to be carved in stone or, um, needs to be published in a, in a big journal. Um, but it's really something that you can keep for yourself. And then if it has to be more formal, it can be. And Stephanie, I think, you know, one of the things is, is really like for, for a lot of people that this concept might, might be newer to, you know, mm-hmm. how do preceptors go in on their day to day and really describe their beliefs or even even self-identify like, OK, how do I what makes sense to me? How am I? What is what are my beliefs for of how to develop a teaching philosophy? Sure. I mean, I think the first step is really reflecting. Uh, sometimes that's scary for people. <laughs> you think that it ends when you leave pharmacy school or residency, but it doesn't. It's something that I think all of us. Uh, do on some level. And and when you're thinking about what your teaching beliefs are, you really have to think internally and and kind of reflect on the experiences you've had. I would, I would say, you know, it's encouraged, like, I would encourage people to take a second to, you know, write down some things that have been really influential in their teaching or things that they felt were good from their teachers that they've had. A lot of times we build our teaching beliefs based on the experiences we had as a learner. And like, I really liked that teacher. Why did I like that teacher? What did they do that made me learn better? What did they do that didn't make me learn better? All of those types of experiences kind of help mold you in the beginning to what kind of teacher you're going to be. And then as you're exposed to different scenarios where you are being the person who's teaching, you can add or change those. Um, but I really feel like that reflection piece is really important first. And, and hopefully through that, it'll start prompting you some of these questions that you'd ask yourself. So, um, I mean, I mentioned like what, what went well, what didn't go well, but like, how do you make relationships with your students? Do you like, what types of boundaries do you set? Do you encourage it to be more informal or is it more formal? Um, what kind of attitudes do you want your students to have? Do you want them to be lifelong learners, which hopefully we all do, but like, are you doing something that helps them become lifelong learners? And I think um, in the reference that was provided, that article by Medina and Dragalis from um, AGHP, there's a set of questions that if you're just starting out building this, that might be really helpful for you to take a look at some of those questions and, and just take some time to, you know, 
jot down your thoughts on that. But I really would say reflection is going to be that first step in thinking about what you're teaching really is and what it means. And you know what? You can also ask former students or residents as well. You know, like, did you have a great experience with this? Or like, let's just be informal about it. Like, what did you gain from this? What what makes me a good or not so good teacher? What things can I improve on? You know, outside of an evaluation, which is another place you could actually look to. Um, but I really think that that reflection piece is, is what's important first. Yeah, and I, I, I even think like from as you said, the word self-reflection, I I feel like that was even ingrained in my own teaching philosophy, if that makes sense, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like as a trainee, whether you're a resident, fellow, student, right? Like you're you're expecting feedback, right? And and without going down that rabbit hole, I think like the emphasis on self-reflection on a day-to-day, not only like can be applied to rotational stuff, but can also be applied to like, how can I be better for my my trainees, right? And and this value of self-reflection. So I think that in itself you know, allowed me to develop like that component of, of my own teaching philosophy. So I, I really appreciate your, you know, your emphasis on, on the, on the self-reflection component there. I am, um, before we like move into the next section, I, I was thinking, um, as you were talking about this, I wrote a teaching certificate, not, I wrote a teaching philosophy, like, uh, hundred years ago when I graduated from residency and uh, my stuff didn't draw literally. That was my example because I, I did that. Um, and I haven't thought about it since, but, um, one of the things that I do is I constantly go through like my rotation and I update my syllabus based on the expectations that I have. Am I like unintentionally like modifying my teaching philosophy? Yes. <laughs> okay. We're doing right. it without doing it. That's great. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, that makes me feel better. <laughs> Yeah, no, it doesn't have to be like a formal thing. And like I said, like, unless you're applying to jobs where you have to actually provide them, you're probably doing this maybe even on a daily basis. I mean, even if you're just teaching your teams, like if you're rounding with teams or you're doing in-services or you're whatever, you're providing education of some sort, you're probably molding your teaching style. Um, I think that's true even if you're watching people. Like, I think I've learned a lot from going to really interesting continuing education programs being like, wow, I really liked the way that they did this. This really engaged me. And that's molding my philosophy, right? Because I'm thinking like, how can I do that later? And how can I incorporate that into my teaching? How can I make that mine? And maybe you don't write it down right away, but it will eventually come out. And then that still forms that philosophy that you're building. So yeah, you're doing it. (laughs) Well, uh, I think not to get like super meta here, but are we actively changing people's teaching philosophies while they listen to this thing about teaching philosophies? It's quite possible. Oh, snap. All right, everyone, start <laughs> writing your teaching philosophies down, listeners, right now <laughs> as we're doing this. Oh, man. I think, like, you know, as as, as we sit here, right, you, you, know, you talk about modifying the, the teaching philosophy. And, I mean, are there points in time where you, like, there's a right time to modify it. Like Jason alluded to like editing his syllabus, like whether that's every year, whether that's after each rotation for refinement, I guess like, are, can you share any examples of like times where you had to reflect and revise and, and what that looks like? Sure. Um, I don't know that there's like a hard and fast rule on this. I think it really depends on what setting you're practicing in and what, what you're really looking for and what you're doing. So like, I'll bring it back to like an academic position. So I've had to do this a few times. I've applied for academic positions and it's required. Um, and I, in a, in a highly teaching environment, do this probably more often than most people, but it's not more than a year. (laughs) 
but like actually physically writing it down. I think that my teaching philosophy does mold after almost every educational encounter that I go into, but I think that it's, it's more, the more formal part of this is really in my like yearly evaluations, or if I'm trying to do quality improvement on my teaching. Um, So I would say like, if you don't have a structured time that you're actually sitting down and writing it, I would say there's no better time than when you're revising a syllabus to just write a few things down. Like, oh, I changed this activity because I didn't like how this went. Um, Or, I mean, my students will probably, we we change our activities all the time on our experiential rotations. And I think that that's, uh, that quality improvement is really important. And that is changing a teaching philosophy, right? Like, why are we doing this exercise? Are students understanding why we want them to post in a Facebook group? Like, I don't know that they understand the, the point of it. Like, what is the method behind the madness? And putting some definition behind that is actually providing a teaching philosophy. And so I'm I'm sure that in any type of, modification or change in activities or trying new things, you're actually updating your teaching philosophy maybe in your mind. And then when you put it on paper is really just going to depend on your job and what's required of you. If you're a resident and you have to make one, then you have to make one. If you're applying for an academic job, then you're probably updating it more often. But I think uh, the exercise is still important regardless of if you're writing it down or not. And Stephanie, you're like internally like resonating with me right now is, you know, over the last five years, even I've gone through several transitions, right? I went from, you know, a, a directly in, in, in practice and clinical to a little bit more research to a little bit management. And now even um, in the industry side, I, I um, you know, again, there are, I think, differences that make that make me self-reflect and say like, this is how I'm going to update my philosophy or like what works best for this type of learner or this type of service that you are providing or this type of educational experience that you are providing with somebody. So I think also in the mindset of gaining more experience as you take new steps and you mentioned from resident, from even PGY1 to PGY2 or PGY2 to your first job, I, I think there's so much importance and like, that is a very good opportunity to sit down and force yourself to like redefine this and, and think about. I think Stephanie, as I like think about this from like an RPD and preceptor position, right? Like one of the things that I'm always looking to to do is like kind of guide people towards like a similar precepting style, like a similar philosophy and those kind of things. Um, because like no one wants to like way out in left field preceptor that like doesn't fit the culture and value of your institution. And um, it, it makes me start thinking, like, are there values for, like, the individual preceptors and students beyond, like, the I need to write this down for my job? But is there value to doing the formal process, writing it down and being, like, intentional? So what I'm really trying to get at here is you talked about how we're all doing this all the time. Mm-hmm. It's part of, like, just syllabus development and, and how we teach. But, like, there is something to the art of sitting down and thinking just about your philosophy. W- what do you see as the value in that? Uh, I think there is – there's always value. If you're if you're going to sit down and and really think about what you do in your job, this is just like if you were – if you were self-identifying that maybe you're lacking some clinical skill – 
right? Some new guideline came out and you've got to read it and you got to reflect on it and you got to be like, how do I implement this in practice? I think it's the same concept. It's just from a teaching lens versus a clinical lens. So I, I think that there is, we sometimes will skip over this because it's part of our daily tasks and, and it starts to become more automatic for us. But I think there is a lot of value in sitting down and saying, you know, or, or even better, is like, if you're getting evaluations, which nobody likes reading, <laughs> I mean, some of them are glowing <laughs> and you love them, but some of them, you know, you gotta, you gotta drink a glass of wine while you read them. Yep. And, um, and maybe you put ice in it. I don't know that that's, that's, oh, there it is. Only There's a <laughs> I knew that one was too easy. Um, yeah, you, you tossed it to me. Um, so, uh, but I think, you know, even those evaluations and just saying like, I'm seeing the same things come up, whether they're good or not great. Right. If, if someone keeps saying, you know, Stephanie doesn't have enough time to spend with me, or it seems like Stephanie is distracted, or I've been trying to email her. And sometimes it takes a long time for me to get that feedback. I have to sit there and say, okay, so I'm seeing a trend and what do I need to do to, be more available to my students or why are they thinking that I'm not available or not somebody that they can come to for things? And I mean, we do this all the time. And so I think that it does make sense when you have something more formal to just really sit down and do go through the exercise. And if you've never done it before, I would encourage people to at least try it and then maybe do it like with your annual reviews, if that's something that um, that you have at your institution. I know I certainly do. And, and it does help me to give like a time frame to revisit this. But the the exercise is helpful, especially if you're seeing trends and things, or if you you've seen some new technique and you're like, I want to try this. Um, I think it's good to go through that process. And and you know, coming back to like we can go really far out and say, we're all scientists in some level. And this is just a science of teaching and a science of learning. And so we're using a same kind of scientific method, if you will, right? There's a problem, you come up with a hypothesis, you try to find solutions, and then you reflect on if that worked or not, if you have to make adjustments. It's the same thing that can be applied uh, in science as you can with your teaching. So um, I hope that that answers that question, but I really think it's worthwhile going through the exercise and writing something down. So then you have it and then you can pull it out later on and you can look at it. I'm getting over my initial shock of of scientifically doing Aristotle. Uh, so as I'm getting over that, I think um, it sounds like the value is really in like the intentionality and the ability to see change over time and then reflect on that change. Whereas like, I might not remember where I was five years ago as like my thought process. And if I just go about it kind of fluidly and naturally like yeah it'll progress but you lose the value of seeing where was i where am mm-hmm. i going how am i getting there and then that change over time for you to reflect on like your own mini experiment and and i think and that's a great point stephanie and um and something you can include. yeah and something you can include in your teaching philosophy like if i'm looking at teaching philosophies for people who are applying to academic jobs I, they can be kind of fluffy and like, oh, I'm this amazing teacher. But I really like when people say, you know, I tried this thing, it crashed and burned. And here were the things I learned from it. Mm. Um, I do the same thing with my students. I'm like, try new things. Like maybe you, uh, maybe you try a new technique and it doesn't work well, but you learned that that didn't go well. And like, you kind of want to see the grit and you want to see that people are resilient and they're looking for new ways to make them make their job better to make their teaching better for their students or their residents or their teams. You know what I mean? So I think that that 
the, the value is for yourself, but it's also for your team members, for them to be able to see that, you know, you have grown along the way. And that's helpful for you too. I mean, like I said, if I pulled my teaching philosophy from when I first applied for an academic job, it'd be vastly different. I don't know who that gal was, <laughs> then, but she is not who she is today. Well, yeah, you know, and, and that's just over 10 years. I mean, if you're doing this over a career, you could probably really see yourself grow in a lot of different ways. So there's value there, I think. I really like the like idea of like um, including your fail-ups. Like it's mm-hmm. like a it's like a really interesting thing that we're constantly trying to teach new students and residents because like as a student like in high school pharmacy school you're not rewarded for failing you literally are held back or bad things happen to you but like once you get out like you have some latitude to fail and like mm-hmm. you may have a couple opportunities to make that happen and and I think that's a great way to kind of. Um, bring that kind of like fail up method into teaching philosophy. Um, so thank you for for sharing that. Um, I'm saving the like conversation about really big words in philosophy. Like I like to talk in like really like simple words. I'm going to save that for a second. Stephanie, while on a plane to mid-year clinical meeting, mm-hmm. uh, I was sitting next to another phenomenal former RPD now director of something and now a ACPO of a whole place. And um, she brought up the the idea of like a teaching philosophy for your residency program. And it got me thinking about like, like me as an RPD trying to like we were talking about earlier, like trying to like get people closer to like one type of like teaching, one way of teaching. And I'm starting to like question a, is that a little paternalistic of me to like, think that like everyone needs to do it the exact same way, but B is there a value in that? And you, have you ever seen that applied in either like your school of pharmacy or um, in other settings? That is a great question. <laughs> um, and I mean, I think that there, hmm, I think if we go down to what our goals are, what outcomes are we trying to achieve? Everyone's going to do them a little different, but there's got to be core values that you have as a program, right? There's core values that we have as a school. We have we have um, outcomes that are either driven by accreditation or we have you know school values. Um, most of them include like graduating students who are ready to be to practice, who are good communicators who are leaders, right? There's a lot of these like lofty goals that we have for our students and and we chip away at pieces of them. No one probably leaves pharmacy school like the perfect leader. (laughs) I certainly didn't and still working on that part. Um, But I think that it's, your program could have some of those values and, and are those a teaching philosophy? If it involves teaching preceptors to be in a certain way or have certain outcomes, then yeah. So like if you took teaching as a goal for your preceptors, right? Like our our residents would leave this program being better teachers than when they started. That's a philosophy. How do you get the your 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 residents to be better teachers? Well we're gonna give them this session on teaching philosophy. We're gonna give them this session on instructional methods and we're gonna give them lots of feedback on their CE program. And we're gonna make sure that we have a question in our rubric that talks about how they effectively teach a team. And those little pieces go towards that outcome. But yeah, those those outcomes and goals of your program can really guide some of the teaching philosophy that you would have. And then you'd hope that all of your preceptors are 
signing up for that, right? I mean, if they're filling out the evaluations or they're they're doing uh, they're giving feedback in a similar way, I think that that's a good way to start. I mean, everybody's going to do something a little different, so I don't know. You're going to get everybody to to follow the same rules, but if you have those same values, I think that that. Um, that could be really helpful in a program. And then it brings you back for your preceptor development as well. Like here are our values. So how are we going to get people there? Um, there's also a valued experience for students having different types of teachers, right? So I'm sure we've all had experiences where we had different preceptors who had different styles and that Definitely. else that molds their teaching, right? So having a little bit of a variety is helpful, but sticking to those outcomes, I think is, mm-hmm. is helpful. And they can be teaching centered. Absolutely. I always try to remind like learners, like there's always something to learn from someone, even if you're struggling to connect with them, even if you're having a hard rotation, like there are things to learn. Some of the things you want to do and some of the things you don't want to do, but um, always something to take away. Conversations that can happen on, in STEM from an airplane. Mind blowing. <laughs> just from just from sitting next to, to someone on the way back for mid-year. We can get this you, meta on, on, on each other. Did you guys hear about the pharmacist who like saved that person's life on the plane. That's a former student of mine. So yeah, I saw it all over Facebook and I was like, oh my gosh, that's the student. I was like, she was one of my students. Um, She was a student of mine at the first school of pharmacy that I taught in Connecticut. And so a very proud preceptor teacher moment. Seeing that she was always a wonderful student. And so I wasn't surprised seeing her name. Really cool. Saving lives (laughs) mid-flight. Yep. <laughs> that, that is, that is, it was awesome. It was an awesome experience and there's been a, a bunch of different write-ups on it. I've, I've seen all over. So, you know, kudos. Um, and it really shows the, the, the profession as a, as a pharmacist. I don't require teaching philosophy for my preceptors. My job doesn't. Mm-hmm. Who needs, like, who needs a precept, like who needs a teaching philosophy? Like absolutely like gun to head. You must have a teaching philosophy. Who's like the like middle case of like, yeah, you probably should consider a formal process. And who's like, yeah, okay, just don't worry about it. Just do your thing, but be insightful and reflective. Yeah. I mean, the, like the requirement is going to be, if you're applying for a job within an academic institution, like a university, if you're going to be teaching in a classroom, there's going to be a teaching philosophy that's going to be required for you to have. Um, that's true if you're in a clinical position or a more research type position. If you're if you're applying to Northeastern University, I'll use that as an example. We're going to require you have a teaching philosophy. So in in those types of situations, you definitely will have to have one because it's part of your application process. Um, does it get revisited? Like, does my boss ask me for my teaching philosophy? No. So I have to take it upon myself to continue to change that over and over and over again if I feel that I need to. Um, of course, I have, you know, a lot of performance evaluations that have a lot of these concepts in it. Um, but I think that those are the people who like would absolutely have to have one. Um, and then, you know, going through the exercise, it can be less uh, formal. So one thing that I actually have encouraged people to do residents and students alike is if you're giving like a PowerPoint presentation, a CE uh, in, in service to mm. write some notes in it after you do it. So um, you may like went too long or people didn't respond to the questions or I need to change the format of this. It didn't flow right. That's molding a teaching philosophy, right? Mm. Because you're like, okay, I'm trying these new things. They're not working. What would I do better next time? So I think like even just that two or three minutes you spend at the end of doing something teaching related contributes to a philosophy, even if it's not like written down on a piece of paper or in a Word document somewhere. Um, Stephanie, I think um, 
as I'm reflecting, I'm thinking about like writing these notes. Like mm-hmm. I write, like I think, right. I'd be like, wow, that was a dumb joke you opened with. Let's not do that next time. Like, or I'd say like, this is like what I write in like my feedback about, about residents. Like, whoops, I accidentally let that resident like sink or swim a little too sinky and mm-hmm. didn't like bring it to the next level. And like, I can imagine where like that works for Jason and like his conversations and maybe with a couple of his like less than philosophical based friends like Hughes, him and I could probably talk about this at the the bar and like be totally fine. But like if I wanted to put like kind of some higher level words, like some academic philosophy, maybe even, I don't know, uh, some theories. Yeah. Like, what know, would, I, like, yeah, thanks. I'm trying to think say, like, word, like, like an academic good. theory to these, yeah. like, how do I do that? And like, are there academic theories out there for like some of oh, the yeah. words I'm using? Oh yeah, absolutely. So, um, there are so many that if you were just like academic theories into Google, you'll be down a rabbit hole in no time. So I think like a good place to start is if you're a preceptor, start with the preceptor uh, levels, right? Like direct instruction, modeling, coaching, facilitating. Um, that was, that is a great place to start because those terminologies are evidence-based mm. and often they're evidence-based in either educational theory or um, educational uh, psychology, which is another, oh, here we go. More Google terms for everybody. Boy. <laughs> There's a whole field in that. Um, so that's that's a place to start are these preceptor roles. And I think that in pharmacy, we've accepted them as some of these learning strategies or ways to move from one level to the next in your teaching. Um, if we want to dive in a little more, I'll give you some nuggets. Um, so there's there's a four learning isms that I really like. Mm. Um, they're behaviorism, cognitivism, connectivism, and constructivism. And so if we just take the isms off, we think about behaviors of people. So it's going to be like, how do you influence behavior? Mm. Usually it's people passively seeing something happen. It's in a lecture. It's uh, memorizing something. That's mm. kind of like the basic behaviorism, which is kind of like direct instruction for precepting roles. And then when we move to the cognitive part, it's when learning is more of this like internal process for somebody. I think a lot of us sit in the cognitive part because that's a lot of our job is what's the facts? How do we answer this drug information question? Um, Accessing something from your memory and kind of regurgitating it. That's that cognitive. The place where things start getting really interesting is when you start making connections. That's connectivism. So that's more of like, how do I self-direct my learning? Right. So if you like give students an idea and say, like, try to make connections between these two different disease states and what are we missing? And like, go on your own and see what you can find from this. That's part of connectivism. And then constructivism is when you actually use your experiences to mold what you're doing in the future, which is really where precepting and experiential education sits, is in this like constructive component. It's very active. Um, it's very collaborative. And so those are some key like theories that there's actually a lot of information out there about. Mm. Um, and, and I don't want people to feel overwhelmed with terminology. And I think if you're, if you're building a teaching philosophy where you want to cite different resources, I would stick to the basics. 
people in pharmacy aren't going to be like, you didn't talk about Gagne's nine modes of instruction or like the 4C method. Like people aren't going to do that. <laughs> you know, yeah, I definitely remember one through four at least. Ooh. Yeah, I remember everything about that. So I don't know. Every single aspect of that is incorporated into my robust nine page exactly. teaching philosophy. Exactly. So, I mean, as, as one does, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I, I really don't think people are going to be looking for that. But if you stick to things that people know, and like some of these very, uh, you know, I hate to say the word basic because they're not really basic, but they really are fundamentals for teaching. Yeah. I think that you would be totally fine. And then if it interests you, you know, use some of that connectivism and self-directed learning to try and figure out what, you know, modes of instruction work for you. I really like Gagne. That's why I bring it up. It's G-A-D-N-E. Um, it follows like the JCPP, PPCP, whatever model that we use. It kind yeah. of follows that process and you can use it in lectures. You can use it experientially. So if I had to like plug one, um, it would be Gagne's instructional theory. So. I really, I really do like your comments about like, and again, forgetting the terminology of like basic or fundamental, if it, if it like resonates with other people and like, you can resonate with the philosophy and these concepts, mm -hmm. I think it's that much more better for yourself, for your learners, for, for whoever. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're I, um... probably doing it more than you think. It's just putting a name to it. Right. Yeah. So um, even just like I do this on experiential, like, do, is this something it probably will come up in Google or you can ask me mm. and <laughs> I, can, I can see if I can figure out what model it follows. But we all do things that are based in some type of theory or some type of evidence. Um, and so what you're doing probably can string some of those together. And usually it's more than one. Usually we we tap into different modes, just like you would with the four preceptor models, right? Like you sometimes coach a little bit more, sometimes you're to model a little bit more, but sometimes it's a combination. And so um, none of these are like in silos. I think that they all blend together in, in different ways. And so again, don't get overwhelmed with it. You know, use the exercise as something that's going to be most valuable to you. Um, and that's really what where it comes from. That's really where the philosophy comes from. It's not just tying words to what you're doing. Um, I, I just want to like, I know this is tangential. Sorry. Um, we had talked early on that like there is no right answer, but as you're describing like connectivism, constructivism, like uh, essentially like the four preceptor models, right? And like the, the kind of the idea is like you always want to be trending towards one direction with your learner, right? Like, especially like by the end, like you should not be doing a ton of direct instruction with like an end PGY2. Like that's probably, you, you made some mistakes along the way. So I just want to reiterate, like, is there a right approach or is there a wrong approach to these things? Uh, Dr. Sabicki, I, I feel like, I don't know. I, I feel like I may have been led astray at the beginning and I want to confirm that. Uh, no, I think, excuse me. I think that there is uh, there there is no right way. I think it's how you do it, mm. and I think it's um, what works best. So, mm. excuse me. So I think that when you have, if you're teaching a PGY two and you're doing more direct instruction, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing something wrong. I think that the that what it comes down to is what does the learner need, right? Mm. And and are you changing how you teach 
to help the learner. I mean, I think we mm. all, that's the goal, right? Yeah, the goal is to be like, what does this learner need? And sometimes it's more direct instruction than it is modeling or coaching. Sometimes they don't get past that step. And so I don't know if there's a wrong or right way to do this. I don't think there's a wrong or right way to teach in a lot of ways. I think it's what you do with that information, right? So if you're like, okay, I have this, I have this resident who is a PGY2 and I'm having to like really teach them a lot of things, getting down to what am I missing? What is this resident missing? What do they need from me? And then using the approaches to say, how do I get you? to self-directed learning? How do I get you so we can do more modeling and coaching? What steps do we need to take to get there? And and that's where that reflection piece comes. I mean, none of us are perfect teachers. I mean, and the first person who comes to you and says, I'm the perfect preceptor, I'm the perfect teacher. I'm like, no, (laughs) I'm not recommending you for the Precept Responsibly podcast. Like, cause (laughs) there's just, you're not, you can't, you'll never be that. And, and so you have to take the ego out of it a little bit and you have mm. to say, like, what could I be doing better? There's always something you could be doing better. Absolutely. Um, so I don't humans. know if there's a wrong way to do things. Yeah. Um, we try to do things right, but I really think it depends on what that learner is looking for or what they need. Mm. And I think this whole like last conversation that Jason says he doesn't go tangential and goes down this tangential path <gasps> is, um, it, it, but, it, but it actually was good because I feel like this describes like a perfect, like a, a form of a teaching philosophy, right. Of like yes. how to take those things and apply those elements. Right. So I, I, um, I actually give you kudos to bring up this, this tangential one, Jay. Thanks buddy. I was feeling real guilty about it. <laughs> no need to be guilty. We're all learning here, right? So this is all part of the teaching philosophy. And like, you know, we're we're kind of getting you through this and and giving you the tools to get through it. So the I like the tangent. It's it's valuable. Absolutely. I think um I think yeah, that's a great point, Stephanie. Like a like the like human approach that like like nothing will ever be perfect because there is no perfect because humans are involved in the process and like um like all you can do is continue to strive for better uh and and aim for perfect. Um that's a, a great point. So I appreciate that. Um as we as we tie down um the end of the episode, I I um you know, before I last question, I, I do want to thank you, Dr. Stephanie Sabicki, for for coming on. Um, for all our listeners, there is um, again, as Dr. Sabicki referenced, there is an article in, in HHP um, by Melissa Medina writing a teaching philosophy and evidence based approach. It will be in our um, in our show notes, so so feel free to to follow the link. Um, but Stephanie, as we as we come down to our our final moments, what is one thing? that you gained or, or learned from a, a preceptor in your career that you've taken with you um, in the long term and, and, and stuck with you? And this could be positive or, or constructive. Oh, boy. Um, one thing. I've learned a lot of things. Um, <laughs> this is your one test on your teaching wow. philosophy. What's the thing you added? Oh, this is a tough one. I'm going to go with, so I'm going to start with saying that I feel like I learned a lot more from my students as a teacher than I did from any of the teachers that I've had. And I know we have a former student of mine who's the producer on the show. And so he's somebody who I definitely learned a lot from because I had to really challenge myself because he wanted to do a lot of fun things. And so I was like, I got to make sure we teach Spencer how to focus and do fun things. (laughs) 
I'm really happy he stepped away for the first part of that answer. <laughs> just to avoid blowing up his ego. I saw him like walk away from, from camera for a second. I'm like, oh, I couldn't give him the credit. Yeah, that's because well, his head doesn't fit on screen now. <laughs> no, um, but something I learned from a preceptor or a teacher, um, I think that there's there's really a lot to be said for connection. And one thing that I'll say, and you can ask Spencer, um, first day on rotation, I'm like, I don't know everything. My mind is like a little thing. I I don't, I can't spew out trial names and I don't know stuff. I just don't. Um, but what I try to do is learn with my students. And I think, mm-hmm. I think by, by being honest about that and saying, we're going to learn together and I want to learn from you is something that I took from some of the preceptors that I had and even preceptors who I am still very good friends with to this day. Like there's one person in particular, I'll shout out Dr. Eric Estes at URI. Um, (laughs) She's somebody who completely molded my career and was someone who was my friend from the beginning. And we had this 20 year relationship because of just how amazing she was. And it's because of those connections that she made with me. And so I I never felt intimidated. I always felt comfortable to be with her and learn from her. And I think that I do try to do that every single day with my students is just let them know that this is a safe place where they can try things and we can fail together and we can learn together. So I think that that's the one thing if I had to pick, it would be that. Thanks, Stephanie. I think that like You're welcome. dovetails nicely into our topic on like coaching and mentorship and like how like that that like person connection is like incredibly important to um building off the backbone of like mentorship, which it's the same in precepting and and definitely a great takeaway. So appreciate you sharing. If listeners want to get in touch with you, continue this conversation moving forward. Um, how can they do that? Sure. So uh, the easiest way that you can get in touch with me is just Googling me. Uh, Last name is Sabiki, S-A-B-I-C-K-Y. And I'm probably the only one who works at Northeastern. (laughs) Um, So my email address is there. It's s.sabiki at northeastern.edu. But I'm also on Twitter at Steph Sabiki. Um, And those are the two best places that you can find me. Um, I don't plan on going anywhere. And I have a very specific name that not a lot of people have. So I think you'll be able to find me. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) we'll uh, we'll make sure we tag your social media so people can continue to connect thank you listeners uh we're gonna wrap up today's show uh if you got 60 seconds to hang around make sure you hear the summary from spencer but we have a couple quick reminders one rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform send us a confirmation via email we'll be happy to get a sticker out to you uh two we have a hoodie for sale designed by a local artist here in boston uh uh, the link is on all of our social media pages Check it out. It's a, a great design, supporting Precept responsibly. We're selling it at cost, uh, so no profits coming to us. We really want to give our listeners the opportunity to, to be the first in with swag. So uh, make sure you check those out. Next up is uh, Spencer Sutton. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 60-second summary with Sutton. Uh, I am Spencer Sutton. Um, notably, I've called this something different every time I record it. Um, I thought I was going to be more creative, but I've run out. Uh, so we're going to call it 60-second summary. Uh, jumping in. So uh, tonight's episode, Teaching Philosophy with Dr. Stephanie Sabicki. What is a teaching philosophy? Um, it really is everything about how you think and how you approach teaching. 
Uh, it's a philosophy. It's abstract. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be the formal document that you write down, although there are benefits there, having protected time to review, reflect, and look at what you've done and how to improve your process. Um, a teaching philosophy occurs with every intervention uh, or interaction that you have with your learners. You're constantly growing and shaping how you want to approach teaching. In short, everybody has a teaching philosophy, uh, whether they know it or not. Um, I did enjoy the conversation about is there a right or a wrong way to develop a teaching philosophy. I think the short answer is a no, um, but there are ways to go about developing a teaching philosophy that are going to be more impactful. And I think some of the points that I picked up on are, one, the importance of self-reflection, being able to sit down and look at how you've managed things in the past, looking at specific instances. Maybe it's you know looking at your practice over the past year and saying, every year I'm going to review my teaching philosophy. Maybe it's having a difficult interaction with a student, resident, a learner and saying, all right, what just happens and how can I learn from this to improve my own precepting style? And with that, there's not necessarily a right or wrong way to say how often do I have to modify or mold my teaching philosophy. It's it's this fluid theory um, and it's something that can be updated regularly with a set cadence and it's something that can be updated on a day-to-day basis with these experiences. There are values to a formal teaching philosophy. And first, you know, if you are going into a position in academia, if you're completing a teaching certificate, you're going to just have to do it, and that's okay. Um, But when you sit down and really develop your teaching philosophy, there is going to be some very clear value for you as a preceptor being able to track your progress over periods of time, looking at previous drafts of your teaching philosophy. There's also going to be value for your learner in that you are honing your own abilities and having this constant state of reflection. There are, of course, professional benefits as well, um, being able to show that growth um, in your precepting style. Now, for those of you that don't just want to, you know, say, I need a teaching philosophy that's going to be helpful and call it there, but want to get into some of these in-depth understandings of, you know, academia, pedagogy, these theories behind of adult education, um, all the power to you. Um, Dr. Spicky used a lot of big words, and for me, they were big words, but I can make out, you know, the roots of them. Um, But with the substance there, being able to look at all the different forms and styles of teaching and not just see it as something that, you know, you're developing on your own, but being able to rely on some of the research that's there. Um, I love evidence-based medicine, and it makes sense to me to also love evidence-based precepting. Um, It would be way out of my wheelhouse to go into really the values and what I learned from that discussion, specifically that academic focus. Uh, But I highly recommend looking into those if anything that she spoke of resonates with you. Uh, And once again, just pitching the or plugging the writing and teaching philosophy and evidence based approach uh, by Melissa Medina. I thank you all for listening um, and I look forward to talking to you all next month. Have a good one. Hope you all enjoyed today's episode. We thank you for listening. Uh, I just want to remind people, if you have an idea for an episode or you want to drop an audio comment or question, uh, you know, record yourself 30 seconds uh, on your phone. Send it to us uh, at preceptresponsibly at gmail.com. We also are on social media, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Find all of our episodes on your favorite podcast providers. We also have these as videos on YouTube. Today's episode was produced by Spencer Sutton. Music by Alex Grohl. That's it for Precept Responsibly. I'm Jason Mordino. And I'm Dave Hughes. Until next time, thanks all for listening. Nothing pumps me more up at the gym than listening to my own voice <laughs> talk about precepting. I love it. That's what I'm going to recommend from here I'm on posting out. that on Christmas. Peloton, forget it. Peloton, don't even bother. Precept responsibly. That's what you need. Uh. <laughs>